Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hunter Gatherers. Today's guest is Vivek V. Venkataraman. Try and say his name 12 times fast. It's a lot of fun. Now, Vivek is an evolutionary biologist researching the evolution of the human species. I mean, does it get any more epic than that? He is also a co-founder of the Orang Asli Health and Life Waste Project, and also, I believe, a co-founder or co-organizer of the Orang Asli Health and Wellbeing webinar, which is a series which brought together different experts who shared knowledge of their experiences with the different Orang Asli peoples in an attempt to bring this knowledge together to find ways to help and support Orang Asli peoples uh, in this time when they're faced with so many challenges such as land destruction, poaching, of diseases, COVID included, plantations, uh, what else, re-education programs, assimilation pro programs and all the good fun stuff that comes with being in civilization now if you visit vivek's website which i have a link to in our description you can find more information about his work and also see a very nice picture of him wearing a neon blue and pink windbreaker drinking a green light green if i may say so myself light green concoction out of a calabash he might not actually have drank from it he might just be holding it for you know some sort of scientific uh, anthropological field work street cred but you know i'll i'll take i'll tell i'll believe that he did drink it and he survived so and he survived to do this conversation with us and tequin was there i didn't forget to tell him the time and date of this conversation it was really good. I think it's my favorite one because Vivek uh, the, is our first guest who did not have a funny accent. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I would like to get to know more about what uh, what you're researching. Like I, I looked at the website. Unfortunately, I haven't read your papers yet, but uh, I did watch some of your videos about actually the... Um, you know this i think you have a video about uh, some walking in the in the jungle with uh, some batek people yeah so if, if you'd like to yeah, yeah i have i have your, a your your research yeah yeah um i'll just say i have a youtube channel with a few videos that are focused around orang osley kind of how they make and process food what their lives are like so people can check that out if you search my name on youtube um but i am an evolutionary biologist who happens to study humans. So I'm really interested in how humans came to be over the past five to seven million years from our divergence from um, our uh, great ape cousins. And I kind of look at this from the perspective of energetics and diet. So there's a lot about humans that shows that our relationship with energy has changed uh, compared to what you see, say, in a, a chimpanzee or a gorilla or an orangutan. We have these really big brains. We have small guts. We walk in this funny bipedal way. Um, and we are much more cooperative. Um, Can you just so explain energetics? What, what, what are energetics? What are energetics? Oh, it's basically how we acquire energy from the environment. So it's basically getting food from the environment and then 
uh, burning energy when you have to uh, run or walk to get food or escape from predators and so on. We think of um, energy calories as the, the fire of life. And so from the perspective of biologists and anthropologists as well, um, we think about adaptation in terms of how good you are at um, acquiring energy. So the foraging strategies that have evolved in, in animals, including humans, are often targeted toward getting uh, as much energy per unit time as, as you can. And it seems to be the case that humans are really quite good at getting environmental energy. So look at our societies today, we run off of fossil fuels, we're able to convert um, you know, heat into mechanical work. For most of human history, this wasn't really the case. And so that's why a lot of us are interested in the ways that hunter-gatherers acquire food. So, so how do you survive in an environment when you don't have fossil fuels, when you don't have really fancy technology? Um, how do you survive? So I do a research that kind of focuses on the energy in, energy out, and um, um, how you're able to survive in different environments. Is it, I find it interesting that the, the um, I mean, for us in the dominant culture, the, the idea is um, how the hell do you survive without fossil fuels and how do you survive without supermarkets? Whereas like, I mean, we, humans have done that for, and continue to do that uh, since the beginning of, of the, of the family of the genus. And, and uh, it's the operating assumption of our, of our society is, is sometimes just like, it uh, once you once you start to understand hunter gatherers, it's sort of like why why are we on this trajectory? Why can't people see beyond this? But I I tend to go off sometimes into very more philosophical. Uh, uh, direction. Well, I think I think it's a good point because I think most people actually probably couldn't survive without um, fossil fuels these days. If you put any of us. Uh, or at least speaking for myself, you know, in the rainforest, um, even despite studying hunter-gatherers for, you know, quite a few years now, I would still probably just perish. Um, and the point is that it takes up, uh, or it takes a lot of cultural knowledge uh, to survive in any given environment. You need to know what plants and animals are around. And that is something that you learn over a lifetime. Um, one interesting fact is that, um, humans are not net energy positive until they're in their uh, late teens, early 20s. And what I mean by that is that you're subsidized by other individuals. So if you compare it with a chimpanzee, once a chimpanzee is weaned from its mother, it's essentially independent. It just goes around eating fruit and leaves. But in humans, um, we have parents, we live at home for quite a long time in general, um, our childhood, energetically speaking, is being subsidized by other individuals. Um, so that's fascinating. And that is a really, really long time period. That's about four times as long as a chimpanzee. And that just shows how um, human foraging behavior is really reliant on things that uh, are difficult to learn. They take a long time to learn. Um, so even just this idea of 
you know, not moving out of your parents' house until you go to college and so on. Um, it's actually kind of in line with what you see in hunter gatherers. You know, people live with their parents for a really long time and they're, they're relying on the knowledge of others for a really long time. So, um, I completely share your sentiment, um, about that. We're very reliant on fossil fuels and going forward, going out of the fossil fuel age and in the future, it's curious to think about what life will be like. I can I can uh, attest to that because I'm trying to ID twigs these days. I have all these twigs. Let me show you my twig collection right here. But I'm trying to just learn which tree uh, belongs to or which twig. What are the characteristics of this twig that can tell me what what kind of tree this is? And um, it is it is just a whole realm of of uh, knowledge that I had no no previous uh, idea about and it would be so useful i'm using like um field guides and so on but it'd be so much easier if there was someone to, to show me and, and tell me you know this is right and this is wrong and um unfortunately yeah. i you know the the people in in our world in our reality are learning you know which nikes and uh reeboks are uh, get you more social cred um, versus you know what what tree is right outside and what what song does that bird make in this time of the year? You know, all those things that hunter gatherers would, would know and also uh, pass down in, in terms of knowledge. So that, that also makes it really unfortunate yeah. that these, um, that people who live as hunter gatherers are, are so under pressure and uh, so much pressure is, they're put under so much pressure to assimilate um, first through resource and um, um, uh, land uh, destruction. And then furthermore by, um, by schooling, state schooling and so on and uh, education programs to sort of, you know, yeah. integrate them and develop them and so on. Uh, but before we get into all that, I'd, I'd like to still talk more about, uh, about your research and, and just more sure. interesting things that you've found, because I think it's very fascinating and especially the um, implications for, for people uh, like us who, who don't live as hunter gatherers. I don't know if Tequin, you have any questions you want to jump in with? Yeah, so I, I have read a little bit of the work that uh, Vic has been doing on uh, um, the, the stature, walking around and climbing in in rainforest. Maybe uh, uh, can uh, one thing that is somewhat controversial is this idea of uh, the pygmy phenotype. Can you explain that and explain what your thinking is about that? Of like how? Yeah. So so the. So what we call the, the human pygmy phenotype is simply this idea that in several places around the world, that people who live in association with tropical rainforests, who tend to be hunter-gatherers, um, they've evolved very short stature. So, you know, just above five feet tall, uh, a little bit below in some cases, um, they tend to be quite short. And this is an example of convergent evolution in the human lineage very recently because we think that the short stature evolved probably in the past um, maybe 10 to 30,000 years in these cases. It depends where you look. But if you look at the central African rainforests, you find uh, populations that have this phenotype. Uh, Southeast Asia, including uh, uh, the Batek and some other Orang Asli groups, um, and then some groups in South America as well. So that's what I mean by convergent evolution is uh, these short statured groups have evolved from what was likely taller groups. 
And so it's always in association with rainforests, which begs the question, well, what is it about rainforests that makes it beneficial to be short? And I should say that work has shown that this isn't simply a result of uh, nutritional stunting. Um, it's actually genetically encoded. And so, okay, so what is it about rainforests? You know, is it um, the fact that they're very hot and humid? Does it have something to do with the way that food is distributed in these um, in these areas? Um, people aren't really sure. And so I've been quite interested in this question and I've developed uh, some hypotheses that we call the, the, the locomotor hypothesis. And this has been mentioned by a few other people in, in the literature, including Jared Diamond, but it's never really been tested. And the idea is that when you walk around in a rainforest, that being tall is basically pretty crappy. And for any of us who are somewhat tall, we, we can attest to this because rainforests are really dense environments. Um, there's branches and trees everywhere. The ground has all sorts of obstacles. It's very uneven, branches, roots, so on. Um, so the idea is that in that kind of environment, it's, it's better to be short. And again, this comes back to your kind of energy budget. Um, if you're really big, but you're expending so much energy just kind of avoiding things while you're trying to hunt a, a monkey or a pig, that's not gonna be very effective, okay? That's gonna leave you in the red. So what we did, uh, and, and we actually did some kind of what we call field experiments uh, with, with the Batek and then with a group in South America called the Chimane. Um, we actually uh, asked them to, to walk in these different environments and we observed characteristics of their gait. So we looked at how big their steps are basically. Um, and what we found was that um, people who are taller, uh, their length of steps are actually more constricted in the rainforests than they are out in the open. And that, that makes sense, right? Um, but they're a lot more constricted, relatively speaking, than a shorter person. So if you're super short, it doesn't matter if you're out in the open or um, in the rainforest, you're not really losing anything by taking a shorter step because of the constraints that you find in the rainforest. Um, and so we use a variety of, you know, mathematical modeling techniques to kind of approach this, but we kind of confirmed our hunch, which is that being tall in the rainforest is kind of a drain on your energy system. And so we think that this is probably one explanation among several that, that explain why people tend to be short, because if you're big, but you're not getting the benefit of being big, which is having a longer stride so you can move farther to get food in more places, um, then it's really not worth it. So this might be one reason that people evolve to be short. And there's some other ideas as well that are quite compelling around uh, temperature regulation. So if you are um, not able to sweat in a rainforest because there's not much wind down around, um, you know, one or two meters where a person would be, um, having a higher surface area to volume ratio might be beneficial. And so this is one idea that's been thrown out, but hasn't been tested. But that's kind of the idea of it and how we, how we think about it as scientists. Sure, you also don't see many fat orang, orang asli in the, in the jungle. Uh, so slim yeah. is also a characteristic that uh, is, I, I find is very common over there. And, and, and inversely, um, just anecdotally, uh, like savanna, savanna peoples tend to be very tall. 
uh, like um, the Hadza people, the um, the East African um, uh, populations, and so on. But that's just, just yeah. People tend to be shorter out out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's probably due to some thermoregulatory reasons, um, but it also depends probably on how resources are distributed. Uh, so. Tequin, uh, you also pointed out that um, uh, elephants and uh, other other mammals tend to get smaller in the jungle as well. Um, I don't remember saying that actually. <laughs> Maybe in a, I think in the previous podcast. Okay, well, there the, there are different factors, and I guess it's not so straightforward. But yeah, there are some um, some animals which out in like the savanna environment. Uh, are bigger uh, because of uh, constraints to moving around uh, in the rainforest. Uh, yeah, that's that's, a, that's actually a really good point. I should add. I, I think your your hunch uh, is is correct, Tequin. Um, people have shown that that um, if you take two very closely related animals, the one that lives in a more dense rainforest environment does tend to be does tend to be smaller. So you see this, I think, in in elephants, um, there's some other ungulates um, as well where you see these patterns. Um, and I mean, who knows? It could be different processes that are operating in these different lineages. Um, but having to move around is, is one factor that they all face. And so I think that, that is likely a factor. Um, and this is regardless of what kind of, of diets they have. People have, have often speculated that rainforests are very poor environments for finding food. Um, this hasn't been convincingly demonstrated, but, but it might be the case. I mean, in the case of humans, what's interesting about it is that so much of the food in rainforests is distributed from the ground all the way up into the canopy. So it's actually quite hard to access. And to kind of come back to the first question um, about how I got into this stuff in my, in my research, uh, this is how I actually got to studying hunter-gatherers was by thinking about climbing behavior and the ways that human locomotion has changed over the past few million years, uh, specifically testing the notion that humans are incompetent climbers. Um, if you read the paleoanthropological literature, this is kind of the idea that you come away with. But um, as, as we can probably appreciate, the three of us having worked with Orang Asli, humans are actually quite good tree climbers. They're very capable in trees if they're doing it on a daily basis, if they need to do it to survive. So there's a lot of calories in the rainforest. It's just that you have to be clambering in trees to find them, and that can be dangerous. But I was drawn to the Orang Osley originally because I read in Kirk Endicott's book, uh, The Headman Was a Woman, that the Batek climbs 50 meters plus on a daily basis, at least back when he was doing his main field work there. Um, and so that really shows that, that humans are able to overcome the constraints of living in a rainforest environment uh, to a degree that maybe we didn't appreciate uh, previously. And, and potentially also overcome some of the um, hindrances to climbing much more naturally than perhaps, uh, you know, arboreal um, apes. I, I find like our, our 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 arm length to leg length um, compared to like a chimp makes climbing a bit at least more difficult. We don't have as much upper body strength, but um, yeah, when you when you're with some of the uh, Orang Asli people, like uh, you, they just walk. It's like they're walking up the tree. It's it's incredible. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the styles that you see. Um, I mean, I think you're drawing attention to an important point, which is that we have quite long legs compared to our arm length in humans, right? And so that pushes you kind of away from the tree, uh, which makes it more energetically demanding. But people have ways to get around this. And we, we documented this in a paper a couple of years ago where based on our work with, with the Botech and doing a review of the literature, we found that, that humans actually have a lot of creative ways to use their bodies to, to get around this. And one is that you can walk up a tree as, as you were just describing by kind of leaning back the way that some rock climbers do um, so that you're not always actively engaged and kind of holding tight. Um, another way is what's called the frog style. And you'll see this um, among Orang Ozzy as well. I actually have a, a nice video of this of, of my arm climbing very, very effectively using this technique where you kind of just put your heels onto the tree and splay your legs out. And then you can kind of propel yourself up, like jumping like a frog um, up the tree. So despite having these ankles and feet and hips and legs that are adapted to terrestrial locomotion, we can actually still use them in ways that make us pretty effective in trees. But we actually have to look at people who are doing this on a daily basis uh, to understand how this works. And, and too often that gets ignored. So I take it when I cut you off, I, I feel like you had a question there. Yeah, no, I just wanted to comment about some of the resources that the Orangasvi do uh, are able to reach in the trees. And in fact, now that I remember, this was the first time that I met Vivek is when he was coming over and he was studying uh, honey. And and so honey is one of the big resources which they can uh, they can climb up and access these um, the beehives, but the, yeah, some of the others which are I I only like actually learned about when uh, quite recently is that not only do they get all of the fruit that's ripe during the the fruit period, uh, the, but they even manage to um, well yeah this is uh, Kurt Endicott documented that some of the batek would even harvest uh, unripe durian. And, and so they would um, uh, get the unripe durian, I guess they would boil it. And so they would be able to eat it, even uh, have durian even off season, which was, was, that was quite um, an eye opener for me. And it, it just, it does um, underscore this point that Vivek was making that uh, even though at the face of it, um, rainforests can be seen as like green deserts, but if you actually have access to the, the full resources right to the top of the canopy, there there are a lot of um, uh, yeah sources of food that you wouldn't think of uh, so obviously to begin with. Uh, right, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Southeast Asia in particular is a real, um, you know, feast when it comes to fruit. It just depends on what what time of year and what's available then. So one thing you see among the Batek that I'm sure we've all observed is that for a few weeks, they'll just go after this like one thing that's in season, right? Rambutan or, or whatever. Um, and then once that is out, you go on to something else. I, I think um, that's um, characteristic of actually uh, uh, hunter-gatherers in general because mm-hmm, there's also mm-hmm. um, accounts of the, the – I mean, the, the um, Indians, the, uh, West, uh, the American Indians would move camp to the acorns 
uh, and just process acorns when they were, when they're in season and then, uh, in their winter, they would move somewhere else and so on, or winter would go right. hunting camps and so on. So it, yeah. it's actually very, I think, uh, unfortunate that we live in this sort of, uh, real estate world where you can't move, you, you just can't. And then it just build up all these sort of, yeah, I mean, it would be really nice to just move somewhere else. And I think people, people like they, that's in us still. It's, it's, we haven't changed biologically um, that much or at all that this sort of, yeah, let's just move. Let's see a change of scenery that, that, that's not uh, involved. Anyway, I'm again, veering off a subject. I've got a question for Vivek related to that. And it's kind of a broad question, but like maybe this one specific side It's to do with this idea of the, the paleo lifestyle and whether we can learn from hunter-gatherers today how uh, how our uh, ancestors behaved and and more specifically uh, paleo has been uh, or paleo has come into fashion as a, a like a kind of a new diet as well and and is there something that we can learn about the paleo diet or the kind of diet that humans are suited for by looking at um, hunter-gatherer diets and and for example like we talked about the this honey or or having uh, nothing but fruit for a week or so or um is that uh, i mean uh, could you say that that's something that we evolved for yeah this is a question a lot of people are interested in and you know, it goes beyond just the diet. There's whole industries related to paleo diet, paleo movement, paleo parenting, you know, you name it. There's kind of a perspective on human life that is grounded in our notion of the past. And I think it can be really um, useful. I mean, when it comes to uh, the diet, we have a pretty good idea, I think, of what people ate in the past and the way that it's shaped us. I think what we always have to defend against is a sort of monolithic interpretation of what diet was like in the past. I think what research shows is that all around the world, it was highly varied depending on where you live. So if you lived in the far north up by the Arctic, you ate a lot of meat and people are adapted to that diet. They have physiological adaptations to that sort of diet. If you go more toward the tropics, uh, plants were generally a more important part of the diet. Um, and wherever you look, it's probably the case that uh, the diet was a lot more diverse and kind of emphasizing uh, seasonal availability, like we talked about just previously, uh, much more. And so I think the big takeaway is that there is no single paleo diet. So if you look at diets that surround eating only meat, um, it doesn't quite add up because it wasn't like there was a single human past. We inherit uh, our bodies and our minds from our ancestors, and we each have a unique combination of, of genes that, that does that. Um, but I wouldn't say that we know enough about how the genetics works to say, well, here's what your diet should be based on your ancestry. I don't think, I don't think we'll ever get there to be frank. And I don't, I, I think that's probably overkill. Um, I, but I think what, what we can't say about the past is that diets were varied. Um, movement patterns were varied. And the more important point I think is that um, we need to have balanced diets. And we know that industrialized foods that are highly processed are associated with health risks. 
they can cause they can cause um, chronic uh, diseases like we're seeing all over the world now. So I think when we think about it, it's less about specifics than about a general idea of what our bodies were shaped to do and what kind of uh, constraints and limitations we have on that biology. So we know that eating only processed foods is probably not going to not going to you know end well. I just like to point out as well that um, the the notion of the paleo uh, it, it's 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 a great starting point, but I think what's missing is the idea. Well, I think I've probably it's just become the the common term. I'm sure people who who subscribe to paleo also are very aware of this, but that it's a contemporary choice of many people as well. I mean, the Batek themselves are as as contemporary as anyone of uh, you or me that live in um, this um, uh, fossil fuel f- um, built home. So the idea that they're somehow living in the past, I think is unfortunate, very unfortunate and very problematic. And, and what you said about the um, industrial, you know, the um, uh, processed foods being bad for our health. um, They also, the processes to create those uh, industrial foods, those refined foods actually destroy our, our lands, the, the lands, the, the, uh, the resources that the plant and animal communities that, uh, that sustain us and, and, are actually the reason for us being here as well. You know, our co-evolution, our, our community, we're, we're actively destroying that through eating these refined foods, but we, we just don't make the, the connection as well. But yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, do you, um, do you, do you have any plans to go back now to, I mean, Corona is, is uh, unfortunate, but were you planning to go back and what kind of research were you planning to continue doing? Yeah, so we're starting a new project in Malaysia, and I was there in March of 2020, just before COVID happened, um, to get this project off the ground. And we we were there for about a month, and it went well. But um, you know, because of COVID, we cut the field season short, um, and now we're kind of just waiting to return. Uh, but yeah, we have lots of future plans in in Malaysia. So we've developed a project called the Orang Osli health and lifeways project. And uh, this is a collaboration of international scientists ranging from the health sciences to anthropology. And the basic idea is that we wanna understand how Orang Osli health is changing in relation to the broader changes that are going on in their environment um, in terms of land change as well as uh, cultural change. So what we are doing is teaming up with um, physicians who run mobile field clinics uh, with remote Orang Osley groups, and we're kind of adding an anthropological component there to understand how lifestyles are changing. So we all know from a very broad level that Orang Osley life has changed a lot over the past few decades, but to really sort of hone in on what changes are specifically altering health status, let's say, for example, the the rise of obesity or other kinds of metabolic dysregulation, we need to know uh, longitudinally what's happening. And what that means is following the same people through time, observing what they do, let's say what they eat and how much they exercise or move around at different time points, and then measuring health points along the way as well. Um, because you are starting to see the, the, the rise of chronic disease among Orang Asli 
And we want to know why. And this will hopefully benefit not only them, but it'll help scientific understanding more broadly about how these things emerge. It's, it's harder to look at this by looking at the populations that, that we live in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a combination of anthropology and um, uh, um, medicine uh, to try to understand a kind of more holistically what's going on in Orang Osley lives with an evolutionary perspective, with recognizing that uh, each group that we look at, whether it's the Temia or the Batek, that they have their own separate histories, they have their own cultures, and there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach toward um, understanding a wrong Osley health or improving their well-being because they are different societies. They come from different backgrounds and we need to be sensitive to that when we develop um, interventions or ways to try to get people to go to school or whatever it is, you name it. Um, there needs to be that cultural understanding behind it. And that's kind of the goal of our project. What, what have you found are some, how are the sentiments of the people you've, you've, um, interacted with about the transition that's going on? Yeah, well, I would say pretty varied. Um, I think it's happening so fast in some places that there's kind of an implicit recognition that going back to a more traditional life, the way it might have existed 30 or 40 years ago, um, is essentially all but impossible for, for a variety of reasons, loss of cultural knowledge, loss of land. Um, so people are very present oriented. They want to know uh, what they can do to increase their livelihoods, their well-being and that of their families uh, kind of in the moment. And so whether that means um, still engaging with using the forest a lot or if that means working a job that involves like wage labor, um, that is happening as well. So what we're seeing is like a wide variety of, of strategies toward making a living in the Orang Asli. And that is, is really interesting, I think. And we want to know why do some people decide to pursue this strategy and others pursue this other strategy. Um, but I would say it's, it's pretty diverse. Um, what, is, what is your guys' impression of that? Teklin, do you want to share? Hey, you, you go first. Hmm. Well, I, I don't think I've had enough uh, language ability to really get enough sentiment, but um, yeah, it's uh, maybe just from interacting and, and being there and being part of the, the space. I mean, if they were very, very more into uh, integrating and, and simply giving up uh, the way of life that they, they, grew up with and you'd see more effort potentially to, to do that. But they, the, um, there is sort of a, a, I guess like you, the way you described it is like a resigning, like, um, yeah, well, I guess this is just how we got to do it now because the, uh, the other options aren't available anymore. So that's right. But, the, but at the same time, as you're saying, I think there is a lot of cultural resistance as well toward mm -hmm. assimilation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually a pretty amazing fact. I mean, Peninsular Malaysia is a really small place mm -hmm. and the Orang Asli have had, they have had interactions with non Orang Asli for thousands, tens of thousands of years. And yet all these groups over a very small area have, have retained their distinctiveness. And I think that shows that um, it's not just a simple process of assimilation. They're not going to, 
just be Malays in 50 years. Uh, they will still be Orang Asli. Um, it's just that the material circumstances have changed so that the way that that identity is expressed, I think, will show itself in novel forms. Um, but I think that's one of the most fascinating things about these groups is uh, the amount of resistance they show toward assimilation and the ways in which they do it, which are often quite subtle, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're often not given the the agency or like that they that they actually you know people don't see what they're actually doing because we're not in our vocabulary, our understanding. We we see that as um you know primitive or whatever. But uh, Tequin, do you do you have yeah. any um, stories to share? Yeah, so I've I've thought about this issue quite a lot. In fact, my PhD thesis tackled it somewhat indirectly in that I looked at elephants and the relationship with elephants. And one of the things I found there was that, well, not just elephants, but also tigers seem to have a big influence on their culture and uh, particularly what uh, they planted and whether they stayed in one place and also what, uh, what type of animals they hunted. And so I... I feel that it's quite clear that there are certain kinds of cultures which are compatible with living in the rainforest and compatible with living alongside uh, these megafauna like uh, like tigers and elephants. And uh, one of the and a lot of this kind of like is not so obvious. And so when um, when the government well, mostly out of, um, you know, they, 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 they felt they were doing the right thing. They wanted to try and get some of these people to settle down and uh, to have more uh, stable incomes and encourage them to adopt agriculture. Um, this is similar, it's kind of assimilation in the sense that they, they, they wanted to encourage these people to adopt the mainstream or the uh, kind of mainstream culture without seeing that there were certain problems that they were setting them up for. And, and some of these problems are only now really coming out. And you find that so, well, in fact, in several of the communities I visited, they said that one of their biggest uh, issues that they had to face were the fact that the elephants would be continuously coming and destroying their crops. And that this was, you know, a really quite a significant issue for them. And uh, these were sometimes communities such as Abate that did not really have a long tradition of being in one place and planting crops and, and, and living in a, in, a, in a house. And so I, I'm thinking that it's not so much that the Batek had never been exposed to the potential for agriculture. And of course, they had for more than a thousand years, but it was perhaps more of a case that agriculture was not maybe so suitable for them. And uh, going beyond that, um, agriculture and, um, and the kind of, um, well... The one story that I kind of like is that the government has been encouraging many of these Orang Asli to uh, to shift away from hunting monkeys and and have more stable source of protein, and they encourage them to uh, farm um, 
uh, goats, for example. And, and some of the Oranasli were very direct with me, saying that they do not want to keep goats because the goats will atta- attract tigers. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. And, and, then, yeah, like, and then the yeah, issue yeah. Of, of killing your friend that you raised, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking a lot of these taboos and religious beliefs, they, they, they're all kind of linked to, to some of these, these environmental issues, which are not so obvious. I, I'd, I'd also just like to um, point out that like the idea of stability, having your, you know, these goats here, and that's somehow more stable than having monkeys in the forest. I think it's actually much more stable to have the monkeys in the forest because the, the system uh, is, is managing itself. You don't have to manage it. You just have to go out there and get some monkeys once in a while. And as long as you don't tear the forest down, the monkeys will always be there. Whereas the goats, you know, they're susceptible to much more susceptible to, um, uh, warfare, um, also, uh, zoonotic, uh, uh, diseases. So, uh, also crop failure. So the ideas about around sustainability and, 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 uh, so on actually the most sustainable way to live is actually as a hunter gatherer, they're still around for however many millions of years we've been hunter gatherers as humans and still, still kicking. Yeah. And I think those anecdotes about, um, settlement about getting goats or in introducing agriculture uh, are quite illustrative of what you might call this one size fits all approach toward uh, settling the Orang Asli. And this has been going on for a really long time. But the there seems to be this notion that if you simply give somebody this resource, that you'll just automatically have this easy shift to a different way of life. And what's been shown over and over, not only in Malaysia, but in other places, is that it isn't so simple. There's a lot of cultural inertia here. Um, if the Batek were to become goat specialists, uh, they would, in a sense, cease to be Batek because their society would change in a way um, that wouldn't be that Batek-like anymore. So people who really focus on goats, they have a particular kind of society that is, that is shaped around that. Um, it's the same with uh, introducing agriculture. So many attempts to settle the Batek going back to the emergency uh, have, have revolved around uh, bringing in these huge shipments of grain and then uh, eggplants, corn, and trying to get people settled down and uh, planting stuff. And it simply doesn't work um, because there's other attributes beyond just the, the calories that, that go into this. Uh, there's sharing norms that could make the system unstable in some contexts. Kirk Endicott in his book has a really nice anecdote about this, where in the 1970s, there was an attempt to settle the Batek of the Labir in Kalantan. Um, and one Batek family actually took to farming. They said, okay, let's go for it. So they planted their crops. And then a few months later, the crops were ready to be harvested. And then a whole bunch of other Batek showed up. Because as we know, in Batek culture, you don't really refuse to share with anyone. Uh, you're pretty much obligated to. That's how the sharing norms work when you're a um, nomadic hunter-gatherer, and that makes sense. Uh, but in this case, this family lost all of their hard work um, when they were harvesting their crops, and it just didn't work. And so no one ever tried farming again because there's these cultural practices that go along with uh, 
being an agriculturalist that the Batek don't have. And so that, among other things, shows that it's not as simple as just giving somebody a goat or an eggplant and some corn and expecting them to just settle down. It's way more complicated than that. And that's why I say with, with our project and thinking about um, um, ways to improve Orang Osley well-being, including livelihood and, and cash income and so on, is that you need to have that knowledge of a cultural background to introduce something that might work. Um, you have to think about it very carefully because they usually don't work. <laughs> Agriculture is actually um, antithetical to egalitarianism. So that's another factor that is a point of resistance there where, you know, someone can store, like you said, you pointed out very well, like, Oh, this family here now has to share all this stuff and they're obligated to, or else, you know, there's going to be a lot of resentment towards them because that's just how it is in, in, uh, in the society. So not only would they have to disappoint those people, they're also going to have to be those people, you know, it's going to have to, you're going to have to change the way you are to make sure that you retain those calories, which exactly. Right. So that's, uh, it's what these, um, it's what people aren't taking into account. Um, yeah. And, and there's, there's, a. I remember in this book about um, the Pennon that I read by uh, Wade Davis and Ian McKenzie that um, one family that uh, there's this Pennon group that they would go join the festivities of the um, Iban or some other uh, Dayak group and you know they're offered rice and and um, yeah. domestic meat and they they said they don't eat it because it they can they can taste the suffering of the animals and how how like the, mm. just how terrible the meat is and so on it stinks. So that's another thing, just food preference. I think they're hard-pressed to give up the foods that they love as well. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, th th there's so much arrogance in, in the uh, sort of the idea of development. Like imagine hunter-gatherers came to, you know, your little suburb and they said, well, stop, you can't drive that SUV anymore. And you stop, they smack the, the pop-tart out, out of your hand. And they said, well, you, you know, take all those clothes off and uh, start walking around like us. And and, and it, the arrogance of, of development is really just, it's really frustrating. But I mean, so much more of it, it has to do with just um, resource grabs and, and so on than it actually does in development sort of just the uh, the greenwashing per se but I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about that because you got to go in and do your field work but um, well I think I think we can talk about it generally I mean I was conducting some interviews uh, a little while ago where we had a, a question that said like would you prefer to eat monkey meat or mm -hmm. cow meat and um, I mean it shouldn't even have been a question because right. it was unanimous everyone in this group uh, preferred the the taste of monkey, which um, if you asked any of us, it would be the probably the exact opposite. Um, and yeah, you can't change things like that overnight. And there's no better or worse when it comes to a preference like that. And so I, I agree with you. Um, there, there is a lot of arrogance and assumptions behind these development efforts. Um, you know, that being said, we, we're living in a modern world now. The Orang Osley are being uh, pushed into this modern world. And um, we need to be able to as a society, I think, accommodate them to the extent that they want to be incorporated into the modern world. And so we need to be, um, I think, w w when we think about how to bring people to school, if, the, if they want to go to school or get engaged in the outside world in some way, um, we have to have that cultural sensitivity uh, kind of without judgment, but at the same time kind of um, offer pathways 
uh, by which they can kind of develop into who they want to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is the takeaway is that it's really complicated. But I, I really like just to come back to your point about egalitarianism. I mean, this is one of the important attributes of the Yorong Asli is that a lot of these groups are highly egalitarian, meaning that no single person can command another person what to, uh, what to do. Um, not huge levels of inequality, but we are seeing this with, uh, with settlement, um, the accumulation of goods and power dynamics are changing. And I think that's a real, that's a real challenge um, going forward because it's not the way it was for, you know, most of, most of their history. So, so that'll be an interesting change to see how inequalities develop uh, through time. What, what I like about your research and uh, people who do research like this, uh, similar to yours, and uh, helping us understand more about who we are, you know, what our species is, and that we essentially haven't changed much um, from you know our past and today, and we still have the same needs and and uh, tendencies and so on. That it, it, for me, like, what needs to happen is a change in the narrative um, of how to live on this planet. And it's to me, when, when you, when you become aware of just who we are and what we need and then the, what is considered realistic and unrealistic. So just as an example, we, we think like, Oh, it's people can't really live in the forest. It's unrealistic. And uh, it's unrealistic to, I don't know what, what, what could I say? Well, we, we couldn't keep all those resources just like there. They need to be cut down. Like that's a, a totally unrealistic, but is it like, but somehow it's more realistic to think about like going to Mars and uh, recolonizing this planet, uh, like, sorry, terraforming this planet for human life versus yeah. like maintaining or, or like trying to restore some of this planet so that people can live um, more uh, harmoniously and in balance with the the uh, plants and animals that we've uh, and waters that we've uh, co-evolved with or let's say the river like oh it's so unreal you know we're not going to ever be able to drink from that river again that's totally out of the realm of possibility but wait 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 that that's just what we did forever and no we need to like give people more education so they can invest in these i don't know mutual funds and so on i i just think that narrative needs to change and, yeah. and your and work that you're doing is very useful in people who are really trying to change the narrative about how uh, I guess civilization uh, or people need to live. I guess civilization you could even see as antithetical to to uh, hunter gatherer right. life. But um, yeah, before I get further into any more rants, I don't know if there's anything else you want to to share or or tech one if you had any more questions. Yeah, I'm happy to keep talking. Hour, by the way, if you guys want to talk for another. Oh yeah, I could while. keep going. I, I actually wanted to know what do what do the um, people that you've um, done your field work with, um, the, your friends and the Orang Asli that you've met, what do they say about why they are the size that they are? Do they have any stories about oh, that or uh, ideas? Um, I guess I don't recall specifically, but I have worked. I mean, I, I've worked in Central Africa as well. Um, and we have asked that question, you know, I think people who live in the rainforest, not surprisingly, they, they identify with it. It's part of their identity. And, and the Batek and other Orang Asli do this um, as well. Um, so as I said, I can't recall specifically if I've asked that question in recent years, but I do recall one instance where um, uh, I had a conversation where, where someone basically said like, you know, the rainforest is our home. We are, they didn't use the word adapted, um, 
but I think that's basically what they were trying to uh, uh, convey. I mean, it's really a part of their identity. Um, mm. I, I, so. I'm very jealous of the um, the connection and the the feeling of place and belonging that they have to a place. I mean, I'm a I'm not a native Indian person here in the North America, and um, I can I, I don't know. I think a lot of people here, everyone here that isn't is an indigenous person or hasn't made an effort to reconnect to the, the place feels that in some way. And that also drives the uh, consumer, you know, the, the drive for consumption because you're trying to feed this feeling of like, I don't belong here. Like what, what is going on? I don't, I'm not connected. But when you're with the Orang Asli people or indigenous people, there's just no question. Like we're from here. Why would I, you know, what's the point of I don't want to. Yeah, I think think that's a good point. And I think a lot of people feel that um, in modern society. I think it accounts to some extent for a lot of the initiatives that you see to get people more familiar with their local environments, which I think are always great initiatives. I mean, we just don't pay that much attention to the the cycles of the earth anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think we can say that, you know, without you know, getting too like crunchy about it even. Like I think it's something that is deeply ingrained in um, our, our being really that we need to have this connection, um, with nature. And I don't know if we can have it in the way that the Orang Asli have it, you know, living in our societies, but I think we can always go out and seek pieces of it, um, um, on our own that I think can give us the same kind of physiological and mental health rewards. Um, But I I completely agree. And that's why it's all the more heartbreaking to see a lot of the devastation that you see, I mean, all around the world, as you're saying with the waterways, but, you know, more concretely with the wrong Osley, when you drive around areas that were only deforested in the past 20 to 30 years, um, and you're sitting with somebody who can point out to you from a highway where they were born, Mm -hmm. just over on the highway that's in a palm oil plantation now. And so their whole family history, their myths, their, their entire um, identity is kind of wrapped up in these specific locations. Um, and they're simply pushed off of these areas. They're cut down and it's turned into monoculture. I mean, it's just shocking that you have so much diversity in these Southeast Asian rainforests that is cut down and then you replace it with a single species in the, you know, in the case of the palm oil plantations or rubber or whatever, mm-hmm. a single species. Too. Yeah. Durian now is becoming more of a problem. Um, and I just, I, I think it's just difficult to imagine how um, anyone can see that as a positive because we know that diversity uh, creates strength. And this isn't simply a, an Orang Asli issue. And I think this is one thing we need to emphasize more is that the whole health of, of Malaysia, the whole health of Southeast Asia depends on having resilient ecosystems. And if you're just scouring the land, taking away um, all the plants and animals, if you're taking away the, the, the layers of, of roots and connectivity that prevent erosion, um, that can only end up being bad for everyone in that society. Um, and so it's, there's just so much evidence for that view that it's shocking that uh, 
policies are still pursued with the sort of zeal that they are. I mean, the the striving to cut down every single last stand of primary dipticarp forest. Um, it's it's just not a good move for society, and I think we need to be making this case uh, for the Orang Osley and, and and beyond them too about why we need to keep these areas. But I agree with you. We need a kind of a radical shift in 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 our orientation toward nature. Um, that being said, I think it's easier said than done um, when it comes to living in these really massive, complex societies about how we do this. So yeah, in in some way, massive and co- like absolutely massive in some ways, and and so complex and and in some ways so just monolithic, linear. Just cut it down, turn it to pulp. You know turn the land into like it's just so linear in some ways whereas the um the orang asli perspective the indigenous perspective is very circular right it's 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 just continue just continue learn be a part of this place um I, i was wondering also how has the time that you've spent over there the interactions you've had the experiences you've had changed the way or at least influenced the way how you live in Calgary in a big city. I don't know if you live in the city, but you know, where you do live. Yeah, I live in the city. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, cause, cause what I was going to try in with to say is that, um, I find it from a personal perspective, very enlightening to work with Orang Osley and other indigenous people. Cause I feel like I learn a lot from one perspective. It's just that there's other ways of living that are perfectly fine and just as good as ours that are nevertheless completely different. Um, it's important to step outside of your bubble to think about other ways of organizing your social world of organizing yourself in relation to nature. Um, and, and to think now that like the amount of diversity that we've erased over the past four or 500 years, um, through colonial efforts, um, the amount that we've lost. I mean, it's truly staggering in scale. Um, and then kind of more concretely thinking about how to live in terms of, of what you eat, how you exercise, what you do, kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier of this idea of, it's almost like um, this idea of like moderation where, um, you know, you don't just eat only meat or only raw food, but you need uh, a balanced diet from a variety of sources. Um, you need to be moving your body in a diversity of ways. Um, we tend to think in our society that getting a little bit disabled with age, not being able to move around as much, being really inflexible is just a product of aging itself. Um, but what research, what research is showing and what observations living among, uh, um, among Orang Osley show is that that isn't really true. It's just that we live in a society where we're kind of hunched over our computers. We don't move around as much. Our movements tend to be quite um, stereotypical and repetitive. Like you just kind of maybe go for a walk and then you sit on your couch. But um, there's this idea of active rest. Uh, you know, imagine not having furniture and having to squat in your house all the time when you kind of sit around or sit, you know, Indian style all the time. This is what the Orang Asli do, right? Um, and I find myself kind of embarrassed about how inflexible I am when I'm, when I'm, when I'm living there. 
Um, but I think, you know, not having furniture, um, engaging all of your body, um, this stuff can be really, really useful. And as a result, things like disability, things even like heart disease um, or any other disease of aging, they aren't necessary consequences of being human or aging. They seem to be in part consequences of the way that we live our lives. And so I very much take, uh, take to heart the practices that I observe in the field, whether it's eating, moving around, or even when it comes to uh, parenting, you know, there's like paleo parenting uh, approaches. And I I actually don't have any kids. Uh, This is more theoretical about what I would do if I had kids. Um, But sort of letting people, letting kids explore, solve problems on their own, it kind of makes you question the top-down approach that we have toward making rules and guidelines um, in our societies of like, oh, well, kids shouldn't do that. They may get hurt. Um, the idea of exploration um, being more a part of our lives. So it just kind of makes you question a lot of the basic assumptions that we have in our world about what it is normal to do. And I think that is like the constant challenge and interest in all this is that uh, we are as strange as anyone else. And in fact, we are probably the strangest in evolutionary perspective. Are you guys familiar with the acronym WEIRD? Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. This is the no. idea that, yeah, so this, this kind of uh, uh, gets to the points I'm making, which is that we are weird. Living in these societies that we live in is very weird from an evolutionary perspective. And there's a lot of work now in psychology as well as anthropology and other areas showing that that people uh can be quite different if they're in non-weird societies mm-hmm. um and so we need to take into account how how special we are and how special our society is and not get wrapped up in that being the norm and so that is, that i think is the constant challenge and the value of anthropology and it, it very much informs my my daily life do you, I mean, do you guys feel the same way? Absolutely. I, I, I agree with all that. And the, the weird acronym is very, very useful. Um, I, I tend to people, uh, friends I have discussions with, they'd like to say, Oh, humans are evil. Humans are evil, but it's, it's the weird culture that's if causing all the problems, it's this, this expanse of this, this, uh, what you said, uh, Western, not even just Western, but industrial, um, industrial society that's sort of just expanded and, uh, knowing or honestly, it makes it hard to live. I mean, it was already hard to live in, in this society. And I think anyone that says it's very easy is is sort of somehow, um, being romantic. (laughs) Let's use the word, right. That they use on us is being romantic. And people always say, you know, you're being romantic, you know, we can't all be, uh, hunter gatherers anymore. Well, we can't all be driving SUVs and, um, and paying taxes that go to fund wars and, uh, you know, tearing down, um, tearing down the, every single last tree either. So who's being romantic? I mean, the person who believes that, um, you know, humans can live in the forest or the people who think that we need to go to, uh, to another planet and, and terraform it. I, mean, I think that the, uh, the romantic idea is kind of something we could throw back at them because having, experienced uh at least a sliver of life in the the rainforest when you come back here you're just made aware of just how 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 problematic so many things are 
I mean, you can, you can actually pinpoint them. I mean, think, I think everyone can feel it internally. You know, there's something really wrong here. You know, there's something really wrong and, and they attribute to something else. Well, I don't have that car or I don't have, you know, if I only had this, but then when you, when you go to a place where all those things aren't, aren't present, but people are very happy, um, you know, as long as they don't hear the chainsaws and the yes. uh, bulldozers, um, and you come back here well, exactly. and you're like, well, what do, what was, what do I need all those things for? It's, there's something wrong. So, but until you've seen it, until you've experienced it, it's, it's uh, somehow hard for people to accept. I mean, the conditioning is very strong. Um, yeah. I mean, to, to, to sort of build on that, I think what, what you're sort of getting at is this assumption that once we have our material goods accounted for in our lives and that you can quote unquote live comfortably that um, that pretty much solves the problem that, you know, therefore you can be happy. Um, I think modern times are showing us that this is a major misunderstanding of, of, of human evolution, of, of human social life, and also of how we shape meaning. Um, because as you just said, um, and as, as many people have, have pointed out, that if you go to these societies, um, there's not a lot of material goods, but people actually seem to be quite happy. And I think this partly accounts for why you're seeing a rise in mental health disorders, a rise in loneliness, is that I think there's a real crisis of meaning. Um, and I, I think it's kind of complicated. I mean, just from an anecdotal perspective, whenever I come back from the field, from living with Arang Osley, um, I'm glad to be back in the sense that my life becomes more, more comfortable um, and more predictable. Um, and that's all good and well, but I often face periods of, of loneliness and feelings of isolation. And I think the reason is that when you live in an Orang Ozzy village, there's no privacy there. It's a very communal life. Um, you're always talking to somebody and interacting with somebody else. Um, if something goes wrong, there's always somebody to help you out. There's social support nets. Um, and now we have these, but they're more, much more bureaucratized. Uh, we live in these, you know, uh, apartments and houses that, are, that have these walls that are very cut off from other people. Um, it's no surprise that people feel so lonely and isolated. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know what the solution is because it seems like we're kind of on this path <laughs> that might be hard to get off of. But I think what it shows is that um, it's not so much the material goods, but your social support and that feeling of belonging to a community that is, that is truly uh, what we need to strive for and to have some kind of meaning and, and a goal to work toward. And that accumulation of material goods is never going to satisfy that. Um, so, you know, I don't think any of this is like really novel, but I think having the perspectives that I think the three of us have, have had living in these Orang Isley villages, it makes it all the more salient um, that these are things that we need to be uh, prioritizing in our lives rather than accumulation of, of uh, wealth and cars and whatever it is. I, I can uh, attest to that as well. The the uh, the feelings of loneliness and isolation, and the absence of that when you are with the uh, indigenous people, it's um, it's stark. And I think that's the biggest difference um, beyond all the you know appearance and um, modalities, uh, you know, uh, resource a acquisition and so on. The the feeling of belonging, the feeling of 
uh, ease of social, 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 um, a rich, full social experience that is ever present. I mean, you don't even sleep by yourself, you know, in, or, in an Orang Asli world. Like yeah. when I was there, you know, I'd, sleeping in, um, with, in the, in the house of, with two or three other people. And then the children uh, were around and joking and, uh, you wake up and then you're with people, you go to sleep, you're, you're with people all day anyway, but, uh, it's getting late for tech one. I don't know tech when you got to go to sleep or. Yeah. 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 It's after midnight here, but it's very good discussion. I, I would only add one thing to it that um, that this what we lack in terms of this soci- socialization is only uh, is is definitely not made up for by um, by social media because you know we especially during the pandemic we we do appreciate the fact that we are still connected or we think we're connected with the rest of the world through social media and 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 through zoom i mean zoom is it's not um, not as bad because you uh, you 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 do get um, some of the visual feedback, but it, even Zoom is really no substitute for actually being in the same room or in the same um, uh, actually meeting people face to face because there are these subtleties which even Zoom doesn't really um, capture. Okay, you can say oh, yeah. you miss me, uh, Techwin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I've never actually even met you. Which yeah, that's is really true. Bizarre. But um, but yeah, that's the only thing I would add. I uh, yeah. I think uh, is yeah, I, and I, I think it's been a really good uh, discussion. And I well, yeah, I I really do look forward to welcome uh, you back, Vivek. And I should mention that yeah, right before Vivek. Uh, kind of left due to the pandemic. He was planning, you and your wife, you're planning and uh, coming over and vis- actually visiting me. But That's right. I was, yeah, yeah. I was really looking forward to that. Um, yeah, yeah. The invite I guess we'll have to put it off for another couple months or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll make it happen one of these days. Yeah, let's look forward to that. Okay. Yeah. Well, right. um, there's anything last you want to share? I mean, just when I don't want to end on my rant, uh, if there's anything else you want to say, Vivek? Uh, not in particular. Um, I mean, thanks for having me, guys. I'd be happy to chat anytime with you again. Uh, this has been interesting. Uh, these are important issues, I think, to talk about. And I think there's a lot of interest by, by, um, by the public in these issues because um, as the COVID pandemic has shown, um, I think the way that we're living now uh, is, is increasingly unsatisfying to a lot of people. And so we need to think creatively about different perspectives we can bring in to, to think about how to live, uh, live better. So um, cool that you guys have this and I'll look forward to being in touch with you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Vivek. Yeah. Thanks, Vivek.